of Problem Busters and of course I'm here with Jonathan. How are you my friend? Very good Ollie. How are you? Yeah, not too bad thanks. I was a little bit late today so I think I should just put my hand up for that and say always pay attention to your calendar reminders people. <laughs> so thank you for keeping <laughs> waiting and, uh, and especially to our guest this evening. So tonight we have product leader Jason Knight who is the host of podcast One Night in Product clever name that, and also product director at Judil. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Well, I met you before, obviously, Ollie, but uh, nice to meet you both in this fine evening and had a good week. Brilliant. So what we generally start with is a bit about you. Give us a little bit of a background to Jason and feel free to weave into it why on earth anybody would go to all the trouble of starting a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, don't need to too much about that because you've got your own, but the podcast itself, it's been an interesting ride. But if we kind of go back a bit before that, I've been living in London for the last 20 odd years, slowly moving further and further out into the suburbs as I get older and have a bigger family. I started out actually working for a number of years in a really big corporate, like literally 19 years in big corporate life working for a big German market research firm, working across sort of operations and analytics and then moving into development and then sort of product ownership and then product management. And in the last two and a half years now, I've been in more startup land, still B2B, but obviously very different kind of vibe that you get from going from a 10,000 person multinational company to a small urgent startup. So that's definitely been an interesting part to the, an interesting movement in my career that maybe I wouldn't have expected a few years ago. One of the things that I've really done and tried to double down on over the last few years is really go on that kind of growth learning journey as well. Very easy to kind of go stale in a big corporate company where you can kind of just dissolve into the machine. And I've never really wanted to do that. So I've been on a bit of a growth journey myself, you know, trying to learn stuff and collaborate with people and understand things that I didn't understand before, which obviously sounds really tedious and cliche, but it's actually been really interesting. And actually the podcast that I do is kind of a natural extension of that because it's really a good chance for me to be able to talk to interesting people some of which I frankly have no business being able to talk to you know these are popular in some cases famous authors and thought leaders but also some of the more day-to-day -day practitioners and sort of up-and-coming product leaders and stuff like that and every single person from one end of that scale to end of that scale there's always an interesting story or a perspective or something that you didn't know before you started and for me that's really been the biggest part of it I mean I love sharing the stories and obviously I'm as, an, as much an attention seeker as anyone else but I just find it a really interesting journey and it's been really fulfilling for me as well. Mm. What would you recommend to someone who's sitting there listening thinking I probably could start a podcast where would you tell them to start? They absolutely could start a podcast I mean if I can do it anyone can I mean I sat there August last year never having done a podcast you know never having done any kind of radio or anything in the past the closest I'd ever got was having to record my voice for Spanish tutorials because I used to do open university Spanish and obviously that's all remote so you record yourself, you listen back, you hate it, you record yourself, you listen back and so forth and that was exacerbated by the fact that of course it was in a language that I was learning so it sounded pretty clumsy as well. A natural candidate certainly in my own eyes to start a podcast 
But actually, as with most things, and this is maybe the product manager me coming through, is I just recommend just go for it and try it. You know, buy a cheap microphone. You know, definitely don't rely on your laptop mic because you'll be very unhappy with the quality. But I think my first mic that I picked up for podcasting was like £30 off of Amazon, some cheap off-brand thing. Plugged it in and just went. And I definitely don't think that I'd go back and listen to those podcasts through all the way through now, like my initial episodes. I mean, I'm sure they're fine, but I've definitely developed as I've gone. But to be honest, I think if I'd have just sat there, I don't know even what I'd have done, but like to try and get perfect at that from the beginning, I just think it would have been a long, depressing journey and probably wouldn't have ever got anywhere. So as with anything in product management and sort of lean startup terms, you know, test and learn and iterate and just try it out, see if you like it. And if it's going anywhere, you can keep moving in that direction. Yeah, and similar story to me, really. Five years ago, I had a lapel mic, a mix, and we used to meet in person. Do you remember those days? And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I had a mixer that I bought from a church on eBay secondhand from somewhere like Leeds, and a couple of lapel mics plugged into it. I had no idea what I was doing with levels, and often I would come out way too far to the left of the room or the right, and I didn't know why. <laughs> um, and then I eventually got to the stage of... Um, of lockdown driving us to to laptops plugged into microphones and and one day Jonathan said maybe you should just buy this one and and it wasn't expensive it, that was like you know 68 pounds or something like that and thank you for having the listeners ears in mind Jonathan <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think oh, it's actually really interesting these days with lockdown I mean obviously there's a number of negative implications that you know way loads of negative implications but from a podcasting perspective but loads of people are just sitting at home like they, they're not going out everyone's used to just collaborating remotely at the moment so you can speak to some really interesting people you wouldn't have been able to do in those face-to-face times or not so easily and that feels a benefit purely in the podcast since definitely not in a societal sense well i mean if you share that conversation with others i actually think it is quite a positive thing isn't it yeah, depends on the conversation, I guess, but yeah. That's true, that's true. Obviously, Jonathan and I only talk about positive and uplifting and interesting things. Yeah, and I'm sure you're the same. The point is that this is booming, isn't it? Yeah. What's the number of podcasts now? Something like three times what it was this time last year um, in the world and well over a million shows. Yeah, there's. I mean, the stats are going crazy and I think that a number of those podcasts, because it is so easy to create a podcast these days, a number of those podcasts are just three episodes and done that's fine they tested they tried they learned and they gave up and all credit to them but even the ones that are left there's still a rather large number of podcasts vying for your ears and that doesn't make it easy to cut through and I'm sure this will be something that you encounter as well like actually getting into people's ears can be kind of tough you have to try and differentiate yourself or go big on publicity you know catch a wave or something like that so I think on the one side it's really positive to be able to just set up a podcast and go but on the other hand so can everyone else so that just makes the numbers bigger and it makes it harder to cut through so definitely an interesting emotional and promotional roller coaster there yeah what would you add to that jonathan because you've done a lot of the thinking about the promotional side and how podcasts look to the audience right yes yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because there's, there's a lot of different techniques that different podcasters use when it comes to promoting it one of the big ones i've seen is youtube for a number of people some podcasts have a visual element to it 
so they can actually put clips online are really very easy for users to consume because if you're using google you're effectively using um well youtube the second largest uh, search engine on the planet right and i'm not sure if anybody knows how algorithm works but once you do like jason said catch that wave it just keeps going and going but jason with regards to having guests on your show have you started to see any sort of themes well because i think you said last august was that during lockdown yeah yeah did you see any sort of themes that guests were bringing up as in themes from the guests themselves yeah themes from the guests themselves the end topic and the mm. type of guests because myself and ollie recently been having a lot of wellness and self-development problem busters come on which yeah. has been really quite interesting mm. have you seen anything similar yeah i'd say that my podcast is very focused on topics that are relevant to people in product management so that is obviously a theme in itself and most of the people almost all of the people that i've spoken to have been either people trying to get into product management or people that are practicing product management or you know leaders and authors and so forth i do and have very consciously tried to include a lot of kind of inclusion and diversity content as well because it's something that's very important to me on a personal and intellectual level something that i think is really important to try and continue to improve i'm always keen to get people's perspectives both on product management but also making sure that we're working inclusive teams diverse teams with diversity of thought diversity of experience so that's always something that i like to encourage I think lockdown-wise, I've really only had one episode where I spoke to someone who actually was featured in a BBC News article, was one of the guys that was interviewed, and he was talking about some of his struggles emotionally during lockdown and stuff like that, and that was an interesting episode. But yeah, I'd say that for the most part, it's been kind of on brand in regards to is primarily product-themed and alongside that very uh, very diverse and or diversity and inclusion-focused where that's appropriate to the guest. Fair enough. And this is probably a good time to mention that we don't really edit and that people deserve yeah. to hear the real us. So yeah, that's fair know. enough. <laughs> if you can just at least cut the blur out, that would be fine. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. So, so thinking about some of the themes that have come up in product takes us to the problem of the day. And people often say, we're going to become a product company or we want to be a product company or of course we will become a product company or we are a product company. Um, but it's not that simple, is it? And in leading up to this episode and discussing it, we've realized that probably a little bit more like making product work for you and your business, right? So on that note, what sort of themes and product have you seen people struggling with on their journeys when you're yeah. thinking about your show and, and also at work? Yeah, so it's interesting. There's obviously things that I've experienced myself during work and also, having had all of these great conversations, you get to hear a lot of stories from other people, plus all just the general communities that you read online as well. There's there's lots of people talking about this stuff these days. I think there are a number of issues that people raise, and they're kind of bottom-up and top-down. One thing that I've been reflecting on recently and had a few chats about as well is there's this kind of idea of an aspirational, perfect product management company, an idea that's reinforced by loads of really transformational books that you've probably read around you know inspired and escaping the escaping the bill trap and some of those are really really classic books that kind of try to tell you how product management should really be done i think it's fair to say that there are a number of quote product companies 
that aren't anything like that. And I mm. think that that aspirational message can sometimes make people feel a little bit sad because they're sitting down in a company that doesn't work like the way that they read in the books. And they think, therefore, it's all horrible and falling to pieces. And in some cases, it probably is to some extent, certainly in a product sense. And in some cases, maybe that company's on a bit of a journey, like you say, through like a transformation or something like that. So I'm very keen for those people to try to make iterative progress and not just get really sad and walk out because that's not always necessary. From a strategic perspective, sort of if we consider the top down, I think there's a cultural thing that has to be driven from the top and supported from the top, which is like, first of all, if you're going to be a product company, and we can talk in a sec about what a product company is, but if you want to be a product company, you need to have top-level buy-in. The strategic goals and initiatives that you're going to pursue, ones that will help you get to be that. You also need to have the mindset that you're solving the big problems, not just whatever the next client or the next prospect says. Because obviously that starts to become much more of a professional services type affair and that's a perfectly valid type of business to be, but it's definitely not a product business. So having that kind of top level engagement and alignment around the fact that we're not just saying that we're a product company and like starting to use Scrum for our development and that's it, but actually having this top down engagement with what actually being a product company means enabling the culture that supports that so enabling the cross-functionality enabling the empowered teams that you need to actually make those strides in building your product and being make those difficult priority decisions and being able to stick to your strategy and not you know get distracted by whatever comes up those are really hard things to do and without that top level support i think it's very difficult to get there Mm. and maybe we should just define what is a product company to you Yeah, so I'd say, well, if we go back to even one step beyond, like, what is a product? And that's obviously something that different people are going to have different opinions on. I'd say that, for me, a product is something that solves an important problem for people that are sufficiently interested in that problem at enough scale that they will, you know, make a reliable business out of solving that problem. Probably slightly clumsily put, but the basic point is you're solving a problem in a scalable way and you're solving it for as many people as possible and trying to win in a market not just hitting the needs of individual people as they come up so a product company is a company that is very much focused around that as a need and obviously the opposite of that is more an agency type company like a professional services type company where you're sitting there you're taking the engagements from clients direct requests you're kind of doing everything in order everything's more of a project fixed scope, fixed cost. And, you know, you can obviously have some elements of agile development in there, I guess, in some of these companies, but the engagement terms are very different. So a product is something that you buy and everyone can buy basically the same thing. And professional services is much more around buying something that's been customized for you. And being able to zoom out and have that strategic context where you're not just prioritizing the things that people are asking you for directly, but actually building things that are both scalable and have a market to exist in, it requires some tough calls because there are going to be people that are going to be coming up to you and they're going to be people that are asking you very specific things. And quite often you're going to have to say no. And that has to be okay. Because if that's not okay, then you're very much sliding back to the natural gravity of professional services, agency models. 
which again are perfectly valid but they're definitely not a product company yeah and it's interesting you know the first product manager i ever worked with who may actually be listening you're a good man he had moments where he said to me i just feel like become known as the no guy because people say can we can we how about we i'd like to and and he's the one who sat there remembering the other 30 things we've already agreed to do mm-hmm. and saying look i'm sorry we we can't <laughs> right yeah i think the way that someone put it to me once was you can't rely on your customers uh you can't rely on your customers or your prospects to identify the biggest most important problems in a market because they only care about their own problems unless you're lucky enough that their problem is a problem that everyone shares then you're never going to be able to go big on that you're always going to be limited to the universe of people that are prepared to buy from you Mm. and how have you seen that change when you reflect on your own journey from a very large organization to a smaller nimbler plucky startup yeah so i think it's interesting because i think a lot of plucky small nimble startups they obviously in some cases will come from more of an agency mindset anyway because maybe some of the people that set these up are actually from agency style backgrounds or they maybe worked on the client side or they're industry experts in an area or something like that and again there's also the concierge model of like making a startup where you're sitting there saying okay well we're planning to be a startup a product-led startup that's going to scale up and offer SaaS platform this or you know tool that or api the other obviously the aim but the initial goal to help them get there you know if they're being lean and iterative is to potentially backfill some of that functionality with human effort because it's quicker to do that than it is to actually build everything out in a scalable way and that's a perfectly valid model what do you mean by backfill with human effort well so for example let's imagine that my ultimate goal is to be like a SaaS platform that does something really cool with machine learning and data but in the short term I need to get some people to help me process that data because I haven't built all the models yet the concierge model is is it's very much around okay well I'm gonna build what I need to do to prove that value and to start getting interest build my MVP start getting some foundational clients even but I'm still relying on human effort in the background to fill in some of the gaps that I didn't build yet and that's a valid model but you need to have an escape plan from that if you don't have an escape plan from that then that actually becomes your business I think that it's very tempting once you get like a bunch of clients on board to just keep doing what you're doing and forget that mission and that can be tough then to get away from because after a while then you have commitments you have contractual commitments you have clients on the hook you've got a business or you've got an offering that you can sell feels like a sustainable business and it probably is a sustainable business but you've probably then lost that future state where you're a massive SaaS platform because you never built the you never got away from the people and you're all about just continuing spin the wheels where you are and what that effectively is just kind of somewhere in between mm. so i think that it is not unknown for companies to start out like that i just think they always need to have that kind of vision and focus on the fact that that should be a temporary state because if they're going to go big they need to be scalable and it's very difficult to scale people unless you just get loads more people and obviously that then has a, a unit cost attached to it yeah and it is quite a different mentality, isn't it, between a large organization, speaking from my own experience, where 
the number of people in the organization is similar this year as it was to last year compared to an aspirational smaller organization which will double in people by the same time next year as I've experienced in the last 12 months because the way that we think about things is completely different. Everything needs to be fine-tuned and adjusted and tools need to be replaced and processes need to be updated and people that didn't used to exist in the business are now there and need to be involved in the conversation and there's a lot of change going on in order to scale, isn't there? There is, but also when you're scaling with people and you're requiring individual human effort to do stuff, and again, it's absolutely fine, your rate of progression will be linear because each individual person more or less can do roughly the same amount of work. So when you're scaling and when you're adding people, what you want are people that are going to enable you to you know, make that an exponential thing by multiplying their efforts out, by getting people that can build the things that are going to make you be able to attain that level of growth. And if you're not doing that and you're stuck on the linear track, that's, again, a completely valid business model, but it's, it's very different. And I'd argue that you're not really a product company if you're relying on human effort to keep things moving. You're more of a, you'd be better off spending that money and kind of time with people to get the people that can actually excavate a growth rather than everything being linear. Mm. Or perhaps recognizing that it's a partner-based business with 25 partners and it's a service, as you say, professional service business. And then just do that and don't worry about trying to be something that you're not. Again, there's nothing wrong with that business model. It's just different. Yeah. And just from experience of working with you, Jonathan, and seeing service delivery in action, there's never enough people to get all the work done and to service customers in the level you want, right? So I've observed you and your team putting an awful lot of effort into automating and building process, right? Yeah, that's being part of the whole service delivery. I think that's one of the key things that I tend to focus on as well is, you know, to touch a point that Jason said earlier was getting the right people in to help automate and build out and sort of get you out of that initial model of, okay, I'm just going to backfill with human resource, right? Getting the right people in who can then well, <laughs> lack of better words, build what I want them to build <laughs> or automate stuff to get yeah, to, um, to get us out of whatever needs to be done, whether it be automating just very simple processes that seem to be quite time consuming and things like that. So you don't eventually have to hire somebody else. You can say, oh, you know what? This thing used to take maybe a few hours a week. Since we've automated it, we can it would take a few minutes now, right? We just run a script and here we go. So yeah, I was just taking in what Jason was saying and sort of applying <laughs> <laughs> applying to it to, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've been there, I've seen that, yeah. No, it does make sense, it does make sense. Some people will be listening and thinking, but I like my spreadsheet. And that's fine, <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's not even worth automating things depending on like how often you need to do them. But I think for me, I've always been rather a passionate automator, always trying to make things more efficient. So like I started my career you know pretty low down the chain I was working in a call center for a while then slowly moving up through kind of support and then IT operations and I've kind of been around long enough to have had a variety of different jobs on my career journey what I've seen at every point along the way and maybe the part of this is just because of the big corporate company that I was working for is inefficiency everywhere and you're right there's obviously the there's always been the ability to make 
simple tasks, but there's also now the ability to make quite complicated tasks as well. And we should absolutely strive to do that. And any company that wants to be a product company, wants to be a scalable SaaS company or along those lines is like, they can't rely on people to to turn the handle on that. So imagine if like every Gmail message had to be routed like the old telephone switchboards back in the olden days. You could do it, it would just never scale. And that's effectively the equivalent of what some of these companies are ending up in because they never escape from that gravity of having to have people to do everything. And that remains then professional services agency and all power to them, but they're never going to scale. Hmm. And you know, something that's really interesting is a lot of people would say, don't you have to make an amazing product and sell it to someone else to be a product company? And what you're actually saying, I think, is that there are plenty of things within the organization that can be productized and automated in order to scale faster, in order to become product-led business, yeah? Yeah, I mean, obviously, one second. Sorry, is that to cough there? Yeah, so obviously... Making an amazing product is always the the North Star, right? You want to make an amazing product. There's plenty of not amazing products out there that are still very successful because they solve a need that maybe the amazing product didn't solve yet. And there are niche products and there are big products and there's everything in between. And it's a fallacy to think that every single email app, for example, is going to be the best email app in the world because there can only be one best one, right? But if you can find a niche, you know, around, say, security or some cool thing that you can do with your address book or integration with some system that the others don't have or whatever else it is, you can carve out something and you can solve that at scale. And as long as enough people care about it, then you can make money out of that business. But again, if you're sitting there and your USP is that people are moving emails around, then you're in that same situation again. Mm. And plenty of companies with the most amazing product in their space go bust, right? Yeah, exactly. Not everything has to be the best. You could argue that most of Microsoft's stuff back in the day wasn't the best, and obviously then you start Bless getting into yeah. But then you start <laughs> getting into all the sort of the more murky business practices and stuff like that. But objectively, Windows machines was MS Office the best thing? Probably not. There was better things that most of those things. But you know what they did come up with obviously was the compatibility, and then obviously getting installed everywhere. Yeah, basically helped as well. But like. You don't have to be the best like technical product, but you definitely have to have the best general offering. And again, that's where it comes down to find something that you can own and then own it. And hopefully you'll be the best because then that will mean that the people that are buying you are buying something good, but at least be the best at what you do. Mm. And this is me creating space for Jonathan, you see. <laughs> in your experience working with product in different organizations, the common pitfalls you see with businesses that are wanting to be more product driven if we take scaling out of it yeah and see what are the things that you encounter when you say oh this is a bit of a <laughs> unhappy path when it comes to product yeah so i think a big one is you need to have alignment in the company everyone in the company needs to be pulling in the same direction so i've sat there with someone from sales in a conversation at a pub back in the day and friendly and pleasant conversation where the guy told me he just didn't understand how I thought you know basically in product terms around the things and I didn't understand why anything that I thought was important was really important because they were different to what he thought was important and again there's no reason for him not to think that but the fact that existed within a company is disconnect 
and there shouldn't be a disconnect. And I think that when you start seeing those disconnects between different parts of the company, like so like a product team that's obviously wanting to make good product decisions, a sales team ideally should be making good sales decisions to sell that product, customer support teams, customer success teams, obviously supporting people to use that product in effective ways, marketing, coming up with a great product marketing to get that out into the market. If those people aren't aligned, or worse still, even kind of rewarded differently or rewarded to a different set of criteria because there's no actual alignment or behind the product, then that's a big red flag because it means that you're going to be pulling in different directions and disagreeing with each other on what's important. So that is a bit of a red flag. Another thing that I've seen is people, for example, in the product team, I include myself in this as well from the past and definitely not proud of it, but almost referring to the commercially focused part of the business as quote unquote the business. And this is something I've chatted about a few times recently. It's like we're all part of the business. If we feel that the business is a separate part to the product organization, then there's a total disconnect and the organization is dysfunctional. So that is something that needs to be bridged. We all need to be on the same page. And that's not just that everyone has to come to product and drink the product Kool-Aid. It's a two-way thing. I said earlier about the books and the aspirations. I mean, obviously there are kind of product norms that you would hope that people could stick to, but you don't have to be all the way in those books, depending on the organization and depending on the type of clients you have or the type of users that you have. There's always the chance for that needle to be not 100% in those books. Maybe somewhere in between those books and the complete opposite of those books. So trying to find that equilibrium and a way to get the best of product thinking in there at the same time as actually supporting the business and the people in the business and the functions within the business I think is really important and definitely something that I've desperately been trying to do in my current role is to make sure that that alignment is across the board and that we're not kind of fractured because as soon as you're fractured you're not necessarily dead but you're certainly struggling yeah i'm just thinking say if i was as a layperson i've just joined a company they've just started to build out their product team and i've noticed that there is alignment a disconnect we're not aligned with the other parts of the business or i'm seeing a disconnect between the parts of the business what is the most effective way to align different parts of the business to be more, I wouldn't want to say product focused, but sort of understand, be all on the same page when it comes to dealing with product and the products that the company offers out. Yeah, I think that first of all, it's definitely the product team's job to not just spout off platitudes and you know, read quotes and books and stuff like that, but to actually keep receipts and show their work. So to make sure that they're not just saying that this is a good idea, but in some way proving that this is a good idea. Now that could be the smallest proof possible, a small initiative that they do in a certain way or some experiments that they run really quickly to demonstrate the proof or the disproof of a hypothesis that they had or something like that. Some kind of actual proof point that you can take to a potentially misaligned stakeholder and demonstrate some value of what it is that you're trying to do. Now... Obviously, that implies the relationship is with someone who actually wants to change. So, for example, if you're sitting there and you show your work and you have your justifications and what you think is a good story and the company is actively trying to stop you doing that because they 
have a different way of working, they don't believe in product thinking or they your points are invalid. You've got a decision to make one way or another, but the simple fact is you're going to find it very difficult to break through that. I mean, that's you need to have leadership level alignment, at least in the aspiration to be that. You don't have to agree on everything and you definitely don't have this like two-week plan to get everything to be exactly like it is in Inspired or anything like that. But you need to have an alignment on the direction of travel. And if you don't have that, I think that's... You're probably fighting a losing battle. If you do have that, then it's just about, like I say, showing your work, keeping your receipts, making sure that you document things, you can show the outcomes that came from the decisions that you made, the experiments that you tried, the prioritization calls that you made. And hopefully, step by step, you can start to shift opinion in your favor. Because if, again, if you can't shift that opinion, you're again, kind of fighting a losing battle. Mm. It's quite amazing how difficult it is for a group of leaders in any business to all get along all of the time, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And it's a wonderful thing when they do. It is. But again, people don't have to get along. I mean, it's obviously nice if they do. They don't have to be best buds or anything like that. And I think also they don't even have to agree on everything, indeed on most things. You don't get leaders in the room to just sit there nodding at each other for the most part. You want strong personalities. You want different points of view. You want devil's advocates and so forth. But as long as that team is prepared to either come to an agreement or disagree but align and you know allow the space for that thinking or those experiments or that work to be done, then that's a good thing. And, you know, people can grumble and shout from the peanut gallery if they want to, but they should probably keep that within certain circles. You don't want them just raining down on the day-to-day practitioners, individual contributors and stuff like that, but people are always allowed to have an opinion. We absolutely shouldn't be shutting down anyone's opinion or telling them that their opinions or their thoughts, their mental models are incorrect, but at the same time, you have to have that alignment or at least disagree, but still do it. Yeah, there's an element of seeing the bigger picture, isn't there, Yeah, what you described? Yeah, it's really tempting for companies to just, whenever a company puts like £5 in their shirt pocket or whatever, they just decide to go and try and please that person. Like elements of recency bias, you know, potentially financial implications as well, and people are thinking just of what's in front of them. And that's completely understandable, you know, people after all. And there are people that will say, well, hey, yeah, treat your your product portfolio as a portfolio and put a certain percentage aside for the kind of the non-product stuff. You know, there's people that say, well, maybe have like a set professional services team that are separately staffed and effectively kind of a, a splinter group that can do some of this work on the side and that the main product team can do the main product stuff. And even some of the big product companies like Salesforce, you know, they have massive professional services because they know that that's a business that they can make money out of. But don't work for Salesforce, but I'm assuming that the majority of their product development isn't done by the people that are also doing custom integrations for individual mm-hmm. clients. Yes. I don't know why, Jonathan, but I just keep thinking about service delivery as Jason's talking. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. When you do offer, I guess, a product that could be not seen as a service at the same time, but it is very easy to sort of fall into that. I think that's why you keep going back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the early point of just sort of working your way out of that by, you know, getting people into who are also aligned (laughs) with the mindset that, okay, this is going to be a temporary thing. 
until we actually tackle the market that we've aimed at with the product that we're developing. Really interesting stuff. I'm learning quite a bit, <laughs> you know. As a... Yeah, I was hoping, <laughs> hoping it's all correct and that I didn't make it all up. But <laughs> I've been exposed to product for quite a few years now. Ollie, worked with Ollie as well. And it's really sense. interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting when I start to get behind a lot of the detail and hear experienced product people such as yourself, Jason, and only speak about product. It's, it's really inspiring. Good. And also there's more than one way to skin a cat as well, right? So I think the one thing that we all as product people need to do is we definitely need to have a goal and aims and, and aspirations. We want to be working in a certain way, but also we work for real companies. Real companies have real needs and real different stakeholders and potentially politics and different points of view. And it's not just on the rest of the company to bend to our will. We have to be emotionally secure enough that we can go and have those conversations with them and demonstrate the benefits of this stuff and try and make incremental progress and not just get completely deflated if that doesn't happen. I think that's one thing that I'm really pushing on recently and talking about on my podcast and having chats with people offline around is like, the way I put it, it's like better is better than not better. And that sounds dumb, but it's like, you only have to make incremental progress. And as long as you're going in a certain direction, then it's still better than not doing that. It may never be the best. And maybe you might decide to go and work for another company one day because you feel that company aligns better to the way that you want to work or it's solving a problem that's more interesting to you or doing it in a way that more aligns to your values. But it's not a binary thing. There should be, there's a continuum. And, and as long as you're on the right part of that continuum for your own interests and heading in the right direction, then you should be able to find a lot of happiness in that. Mm. And what's really interesting to me is that we're talking about becoming a product company, but we're also talking about being a healthy company in many ways, aren't we? Because we're talking about people working together better. In any company, product or otherwise, you want people to be aware of each other's needs and their motivations. And of course, ideally in those companies, they're going to be remunerated and have ben and get benefits from working in a way and you should have as much alignment as possible and obviously if you're in a company that's completely in disarray all the time then that's not going to be fun whatever type of company it is so you absolutely need to be able to have a healthy healthy working culture ideally with diversity of thought diversity of background diversity of opinion so that you've got lots of different people in the room that can kind of challenge you and point out where things are not quite right and try and help drive positive change and again without all of that stuff doesn't matter what type of company you are you're still going to have a lot of trouble yeah talking about diversity and a wide range of, of people ollie does make a point of getting as many different people and different opinions on the podcast as possible which does lead us into our next section which is the sharing section Typically, this section lets you share a bit more about yourself. Um, it's been a bit of a surprise. We've had a few doozies <laughs> <laughs> come through. I'll kick us off and I'll ask you the first one, which is who do you most look up to in the world? Yeah, so I was reflecting on this, actually, because I don't think I have many heroes. In fact, I don't think I have any heroes. And not to say that I don't respect anyone or respect their achievements, but I'm certainly not the kind of guy that's going to sit there again oh, Steve Jobs, he was X, Y, and Z, or oh, Elon Musk, he's going to take us to the moon, or whatever else. It's like, 
I respect a lot of people kind of as a, a milieu product people that I respect, some of the, the big authors, some of whom I've been lucky enough to speak to on my podcast. So people like Marty Kagan, Jackie Bravaro, Gibson Biddle, April Dunford, you know, some of the leading product or product marketing people that you could ever have the chance to speak to. So yeah, that's been great. But the thing is that these people, through speaking to them, you realise whilst they're very clever, they're just also normal, ordinary people that you can just chat to. So it kind of punches that bubble of celebrity a little bit. I think it's fair to say that there are lots and lots and lots of people that I respect their opinions, I respect their work and the yeah, the contributions that they make. Anyone that will speak truth to power, for example, so people like Greta Thunberg, you know, she's obviously really inspirational in a number of ways. And basically anyone who isn't Boris Johnson is probably <laughs> a good uh, well now there's probably plenty of people just as bad as him, but you know like I find it hard to name, for example, politicians that I look up to or musicians that I looked up because most musicians that I've ever been into, for example, they've they've always gone wrong by the end. They've always got worse. And then that kind of taints the original memory. And yeah, books, you know, sometimes someone can write a good book and then they can write a not so good book and then it taints the memory. It's almost like you're only as good as your last gig, which probably sounds a little bit harsh, but yeah. There are definitely people I respect and, and I continue to be really inspired by a lot of the people that I come across either for the podcast or just people that you come you know books that you come up and opinion pieces I've been reading books about race relations I've been reading books around autism and neurodiversity and all of these people have inspiring stories but it's difficult to name like the most inspiring or the person I most look up to. Fair enough what about the viewing world and the reading world have you got any books or films that that jump out to you? Yeah, so I've actually been really slack on films recently, although I did see one on either Netflix or Amazon Prime, a trailer last night for some Sherpa film, which I'm actually pretty fascinated to look at because I love the whole mythology and also obviously the practical aspects of like Mount Everest and climbing Mount Everest and all the scenery and stuff like that. So I'll probably watch that. But yeah, I've not really been watching many films recently. Uh, Book-wise, I mean, (laughs) a lot of the books I've been reading recently, they're all... You know, I'm living the cliche, the business books and the product books and stuff like that. So I'm currently reading Just Work by Kim Scott, which is all about defeating bias, prejudice and bullying in the workplace, which I'm about halfway through, so can't give you a full recommendation, but it's certainly been pretty solid so far. Empowered was a really good book that came out this year by Marty Kagan, talking about building product teams and product organisations. So again, really cliche to just be reading product books, but... You know, I do read a lot of those sort of books. So those two have been really solid. I also read quite a lot of books and it's difficult sometimes to remember which one, which points came from which book. But no, those are certainly two that have stuck out in the last few months. Nice one. And uh, if you're into Everest movies, you should watch on Netflix The Climb. That's uh, a French movie which is loosely based on a true story and is pretty hilarious. And, and also there's a lot involved in climbing Everest. Who knew? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of documentaries, read the books. I'd I'd love to do it, but I'm in no way capable of doing it. So maybe I'll just get some VR goggles or something. Jonathan might be muting himself for a little one to be testing out <laughs> her lungs in the background. What about projects and movements? You mentioned Greta Thunberg, and you also mentioned a whole lot of the diversity discussion, which is certainly an important one that should be raised. 
Yeah, so I think movement-wise, I mean, obviously I have ultimate respect for Greta Thunberg and the efforts that she's going through to try and raise awareness and obviously the climate emergency is, is not getting any better. I mean, I'm assuming that it got a little bit better, like marginally, when you know fewer airplanes started taking to the skies, but it's still obviously a massive problem. So I think it's a really important movement. I think the Black Lives Matter thing was, was also really important. And obviously, you have had the news out of Minneapolis or Minnesota the other day, which, whilst it doesn't make it any better, at least something happened about it for a change. But it's just like, I get really, really frustrated by a certain type of person who will just sit there and you know, just try and turn everything around. As soon as anyone's being harmed, they immediately turn it around and A, say that that person isn't being harmed and B, accusing them of being attention-seeking and C, that actually the person that was doing the harming was really being harmed and that whole thing is just disgusts me. So I think any movements, so again, like Lives Matter, like Me Too, like uh, the climate the climate stuff that Greta has been doing, I think those are very inspirational because those conversations need to be had and it's good that people are at least aware of them even if there are certain sections of society that probably are reacting badly against those and I wish there was a way to cut through to those people as well. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I watched the whole Chauvin trial actually with an interesting watch. <laughs> Because like you said, it was really interesting to see how the defence positioned themselves. Like you said, it's the people that are inflicting the damage, trying to flip it round and say, oh no, this is happening, it's violent, it's this, it's that. And when you get the real evidence just laid bare, you actually, you can you can determine, you can see it yourself. And we had um, Hakeem Evans on and he migrated from Jamaica to New York. And I think when he was younger... He had flooding in his area. I forget where it was. Was it somewhere in Queens? or <laughs> I forget where it was. I think it was Queens, yeah. Yeah, I think it was Queens. And he was just like, there was not enough action by the government. And it was crazy. He's saying that the water lines were above his head at the age he was. And that sort of inspired him to push for climate, the fight against climate emergency. So it was really interesting. He was really inspiring when he came on as well. Those projects and movements are quite interesting for myself as well yeah and absolutely and obviously these are long-term movements yeah they're not going to fix anything in a day and obviously going back to the previous points around sort of iteration and better being better yeah maybe some of these things would ideally happen quicker but i like to think that at least the fact that these conversations are being had and being had more loudly and in certain cases, people are being held to account. Certainly not everyone needs to be held to account, but certainly more people than maybe would have been in the past, that that's still a good direction to travel. But I guess time will tell on, on some of these initiatives. Cool. Into the tech. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any tech that you use now that's sort of improving your life at the moment? For someone that's basically been interested in computers since i was six and got my first computer when i was 10 and started hacking away in basic from a very early age i'm actually a remarkably lo-fi guy i obviously have a laptop which i use to access all of the internet that i need and i've got this fancy microphone that i can use to record the podcast but apart from that i'm not like a smart home person i, I don't need doors that unlock as soon as i walk near them i've got a very average car that was probably from about 15 years ago I don't really 
I might, you know, my watch is just a bog standard watch. I don't have anything cool. So I don't know how I feel about that because in some ways I think I look at myself and I think, yeah, you're really interested in technology. Why don't you have more of it? And obviously, objectively, I still have loads more than I did when I was younger and obviously loads more than some people that would probably want some of the technology that I do have. But yeah, I, I think the stuff that's really making a difference for me at the moment and it's going to sound like a cliche a little bit, I guess, but because I spend quite a lot of time of spare time doing the podcasting and stuff like that, there are quite a few good SaaS tools that you can use for that now. I mean, you're using Squadcast. Yeah, I use one called Zencaster. That's pretty decent. Some of the editing tools that you can get, spend a lot of time in those. They're pretty decent. I wouldn't say they're necessarily transformative, but they definitely, they're like mainstays of my current routine. So definitely... Some of those have been really good. And also actually Canva, which I don't know if you've used that, but the kind of online design platform you can use to make like banners and pictures and flyers and not flyers, things and for adverts and stuff. That's like basically the best graphics package I've ever used. And it obviously isn't, but it definitely is for the use case. It's the, it definitely is for the use case that I use it for. So for kind of coming up with banners and silly graphics and yeah, memes if it comes to it, it's like just the best, most simple intuitive thing that i've ever seen it's amazing how is it an australian company is it there you go little shout out for australia and australian tech oh yeah and this is the beauty of the internet and of the SaaS or service uh, software as a service world right exactly whereas if it was services company that would just be some place down in i don't know melbourne or something like that that was just you know you'd have to send your designs in by post or whatever and then get sent back a package and whatever else it would just be very different experience. They used to have little boys who drove things down, to, uh, rode things down to the print works. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> In London. That's amazing, right? Mm. Yeah. All right. And do you want to ask the biggest question? Go on, Jonathan. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> what is the one thing you'd like to change in the world? I think, actually... It's kind of related to one of my previous answers, which is like, there's obviously a lot of things in the world that would be nice to turn off. You know, racism, sexism, homophobia. These would all be wonderful things to turn off. But actually, for me, it's a little deeper than that in the sense that the one thing that I think would be transformative is if we could somehow make it the default reaction of people when challenged by a new idea to think about that idea and not just immediately put their defences up and close their mind and stick to their existing opinions because so many of the problems that we have in the world today are caused by people just not either being prepared to look at evidence or understand other people's points of view or be sympathetic to other people's different opinions or different feelings or different biology or different backgrounds. And like, it's not acceptable for someone to sit there and be told someone is gay and for them to think that that's just like that they just can't agree with that and it's wrong and it's horrible and never think for a second of that person's thinking about or feeling or like what their mindset could be what their feelings around this could be i think if we could make people's default reaction be to actually accept things and think about them and sure challenge them if they need to but not to default to basically attacking the belief that they're presented with i think that would solve a lot of problems yeah well said well said well said i like that 
it's a doable, <laughs> it's a realistic goal. <laughs> well, no, but I actually don't think it is because I think that humans are so set in their ways and we're so conditioned to kind of revert to our own selves. And then there's the whole thing around like system one thinking and system two thinking and like what you do automatically versus what you do consciously. And so yeah. much of this stuff is system one, like it's people just defaulting to what is easiest for their brain to put out or whatever. It requires conscious effort to actually sit there and check yourself. And, and I don't think many people are prepared to expend that effort. Yeah, I think it might be a generational thing, as in like in iteration. At some point, I don't think you'll get everybody, but you'll get a large majority. And if you think about it this way, when my grandparents came over, I don't want to go during the war, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, just walking on the street, you get spat at. When my dad's walking around, doesn't get spat at. When I'm walking around, it's relatively normal. When my son's walking around now, I think everybody, it starts to get a bit better. Yeah. I think if education wise, if we start teaching in schools early on, not everything new is bad or scary, right? Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully we get a large portion of people. Yeah, um, like herd immunity or something. But like it's, I definitely agree that it's better in the obvious ways. Like as in, like you say, there's no ostentatious racism in the streets now, as you've just explained. Mm. But there's this kind of pernicious under the surface racism that still lingers. Oh, yeah, And obviously that manifests itself in different ways. And I guess you could argue that if people hide it, better but at the same time if it's just for example affecting hiring decisions or affecting opportunity for people it feels that's probably still there and people probably don't even mm. get to admit it because they don't they're not actively thinking these things right mm. but they're still in the back of their mind and that's when you start to get these fairly horrendous stories about say people with black sounding names and white sounding names with the same cv like the white sounding names get more interviews and stuff like that. And it's just like, this is one of those things like if you can take that data and show someone and they still sit there and say, Oh, there's not a problem. Then that is a difficult person to try and change. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> you could, if you can take proof to someone and they still revert to the fact, what do you mean? White privilege. I had a hard, go hard time growing up. It's like, Oh great. Here we go. Yeah. Like, yeah. or yeah, like the all lives matter crowd <laughs> and stuff like that. It's just like, look, I understand that you had some struggles growing up and sorry about that. But imagine having those struggles and also being black and shouted at all the time in the street, like you said. And I think just people having the ability to actually understand other people's point of view. And yeah, I appreciate that it's very ironic for me, a middle-class, middle-aged white guy saying these things. But like, if people can just think of other people's point of view, I think it would be very helpful in that situation. Yeah. And also things will changing, right? Like statistically speaking, the world is not white. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In fact, look at birth rates and look yep. at what happens when your friend gets together with an awesome Asian person and they have an awesome child. That child probably has darker hair and darker eyes because those genes seem to represent more. Take that to an extension and to its conclusion. The world is becoming brown. And, and some people are going to get soon. very sad about that as well. So, yeah. And that in itself is another problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So how can people find out more about you 
and your yeah. views of how the world needs to become a better place <laughs> and how it's okay to read books about business. <laughs> yeah, it's always okay to read books about business. I mean, I have heard that the older you get, the less fiction you read. And I think that's definitely something I've uh, spotted in myself. So I don't know how I feel about that. Obviously, yeah, people, if they want to come and connect with me on LinkedIn, they can they can do that. Or I'm on Twitter as well with the, the hot take version of LinkedIn. I don't know if you'll link those into the show notes or if I, I have to read them I certainly will, my friends. <laughs> and obviously, I've also got the podcast website, uh, www.onenightinproduct.com, where there's a bit about me and there's also links to some of the stuff, like my talks and things that I've done, but also obviously links to the 49 of my episodes that I've pushed out so far and any others that are coming before I wear out the keyboard and <laughs> wear out the microphone and have to sit down and have a rest. 49 episodes that is an achievement (laughs) there's more to come more to come when does it become a habit (laughs) oh i think it's way past becoming a habit now i think it's become some form of addiction there was one point where i was putting out three episodes a week because i had such a backlog as you know from editing this is some effort i'm trying to keep a lid on it as much as possible but yeah it's definitely i think the thing with all of this stuff is if anything i've become addicted to just talking to people about this stuff which sounds stupid because ultimately it's kind of like me relaxing by talking about stuff that I do at work. And that was actually how a lot of this started. It was like, oh, I was coming off the back of a week's holiday, hadn't worked for a week, thought it'd be nice to have a hobby. And the hobby that I rest came to rest on was like talking to people that do kind of the job that I do about the job that we do. So basically I'm an idiot. Humans are interesting <laughs> creatures, no? What can I say? I'm just not, not very imaginative, I guess. It's been real. Thank you for being on the show. And no doubt we'll have you back on another day to talk about something else product related. Much obliged. Thanks very much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure. Awesome. And thank you for tuning in, folks. We look forward to seeing you next.